So I heard a story about a college student who sent a text to his mother. The text said, Mom, I flunked all my courses. I got kicked out of school. I wasted all the money, mine and yours. Prepare pop. The mom sent a response. Pop prepared. Prepare yourself. (laughs) So here we are, the end of 2017. I think that it's wise if we prepare ourselves for what God might have in store for us in 2018. How do we prepare to be the people that God wants us to be? What resolution would we make? To God, what commitment, what promise would we say that going into 2018 would make us a changed person, a changed people? Today I want to share with you a thought or two from the book of Joshua. We're actually going to look at a couple of different Old Testament passages. Joshua is a book about new beginnings. So it seems appropriate that on today, as we enter into the new beginning, the new year, that we look at that. I'm going to read a passage. I'll give you some background about that passage and hopefully... By the end of the day, we'll see a way to make application uh, of this passage into our life. I'm going to ask you, if you will, to stand with me as we read from Joshua chapter 1. We're going to focus on verses 1 through 18. I'm going to read to you from verses 10 through 18. Joshua 1 verse 10. Then Joshua commanded the officers of the people saying, Pass through the camp and command the people saying, prepare provisions for yourselves. For within three days you will cross over this Jordan to go in to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half tribe of Manasseh, Joshua spoke saying, remember the word which Moses, the servant of the Lord commanded you saying, the Lord your God is giving you rest and is giving you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land which Moses gave you on this side of the Jordan. But you shall pass before your brethren armed, all your mighty men of valor, and help them until the Lord has given your brethren rest as he gave you, and they may also have taken possession of the land which the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return the land of your possession and enjoy it which Moses, the Lord's servant, gave you on this side of the Jordan toward the sunrise. So they answered Joshua saying, all that you have commanded us, we will do. And whatever you send us, wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we heeded Moses in all things, we will heed you. Only the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your command and does not heed your words and all that you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and of good courage. Father, we pray that you take your word, that you'll write it in our hearts, that you'll write it in our spirits and our soul. And because of your word, we will be changed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So we look at this Old Testament passage in Joshua, and to understand what's going on here in Joshua chapter 1, we need to remember a little Hebrew history. So you're going to get a little Hebrew history lesson. I was expecting an oh boy or an amen or something, but stay with me just in case somebody might have forgotten. The Israelites were slaves for 300 years. 
But God used Moses to free them from the Egyptians. God wanted to lead them to a land called Canaan, an area rich in resources, a land flowing with milk and honey. It was the promised land. You'll remember the 12 spies who went into the promised land on a spy trip and 10 out of the 12 came back and said, we're not sure we can depend on God to secure the land because we're too insignificant. Now, that's not what's written, but that's what happened. Because of their unbelief, the Israelites wandered in the desert for 40 years until a generation died off, all but Joshua and Caleb. While they wandered, at some point, they actually wanted to go back to Egypt where they had been slaves. Wandered isn't completely the right word because they didn't wander all day, every day. Along the way, they found places and they camped. As a backpacker, I like this story. These weren't places where they would establish a homestead forever, but places where they could set up a temporary a tent and, and be comfortable. At the end of 40 years, Moses appointed a new leader, Joshua. Joshua was a man of faith and a man of courage. Moses died, Joshua takes over. It was his task to lead the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 main families who descended from Israel, Jacob, into the promised land of Canaan. Now, here's the catch. During the days of Moses, some of the groups had decided they liked the temporary land so much, they just wanted to stay there. At first, it was just the tribes of Reuben and Gad, but the feeling also spread to the half-tribe of Manasseh, We're just going to leave that there. Anyway, if we go back to Numbers 32, we find the original story. I'm not going to read the original story to you from Numbers 32. I do recommend that you read it because I will leave something out and it'll probably be important. Numbers 32.1 starts out with this phrase, a great multitude of cattle had been attained. They had obtained, they had secured a great multitude of cattle. I mentioned to you they were wandering. So if you're wondering, how is it that you get a bunch of cows? On the way to the promised land, they had to fight. And once they fought the Midianites, who had an overabundance of livestock, so they took the livestock. It's funny to me that the promised land is a land flowing with milk and honey. And before they get there, they have an abundance of milk. That's what often happens. God promises us something. We're looking forward to the promise of God and then something happens to us that we think is just as good, so we celebrate. Celebrate is the title. I'll explain that in a minute, but that's what they were doing. The tribes of Reuben and Gad took on the task of caring for the cattle and they flourished. They went to Moses and said, can we be excused from crossing over? Moses is ticked. King James says he is wroth, but I was afraid that would mean nothing to you. He was not happy. He was not happy because Moses gets it. He realizes that you should never settle break. He sees this request as the willful disobedience and he sees uh, of God, he sees that this is completely against the will of God. This has always been a problem for us as a people. We always think we have a better way. We always think God needs our help to fulfill his promises. Had you talked to these tribes, they probably could have convinced you and anyone that they were in the will of God. 
Their argument could have been something like this. Look how we've prospered. They had choice land. They had huge herds. They had a great legacy to leave for their children. But they had settled for something that looked like the fulfillment of God's promise. But it was not the fulfillment of God's promise. I understand Moses' response. After that spa trip, Israel was very discouraged. God was angry. God wasn't going to allow anyone to live in the promised land except Joshua and Caleb. He judged them and they were forced to wander for 40 years. Moses understood that God wanted to put them, to place them in the promised land. Now don't forget we're in Joshua 1 and not Numbers 32. In our text, the 40 years are completed. The 40 years have gone, Joshua's in charge, and Joshua's preparing the people to go into the promised land. They're on the verge of entering Canaan. The men who proposed the request to stay to Moses are dead, and it's their son, their offspring, who are now in charge of that area. So they grew up in the settlement. Like their parents, they have a plan. They say, hey, we aren't going to cross over into Canaan. We have a good spread. God has blessed us. If we don't cross over, then there will be more room for everyone else. Well, that sounds good if you're everyone else. God has blessed us. We don't want to live in the Wild West. We'll stay here in the East. And the problem with this is it really makes perfect sense. When you hear the argument, you can find yourself shaking it. Yeah, that's a, that's a good plan. There definitely would be more room if you stayed over there and it's really not too far to go to get a good state. In verse 16, we see it. We see the problem. We see these three words. We will not. We will not inherit with them on the other side of Jordan. They are declaring we are not. We will not move from here, but we will stay. They are departing from God's will. When The parents came to Moses. He agreed because in part of their promise in their selling to Moses, when it's time to go into the promised land, all of our men, all of our men will arm up and we will go with you into the promised land. We will fight with you until the promised land is taken. And then we'll come back here to this city. Now, these cities had been rebuilt at fortified walls. Things looked good. They said, we'll stay here now. We'll rebuild the cities. When the cities are up, then all of our men will be able to go and fight because our families will be left in the fortified cities. Again, that makes sense. But now when it's time to go, in Joshua chapter 1, they don't really keep their promises. They don't keep their promises because they had good reasons. The women and children. We can't send all the men into battle and leave the women and children even in the fortified cities. Even if they live there, they needed some men to stay and fight in case something happened, right? We, we can see that. Now, it's Adam Clark in the commentary of the whole Bible who did the math for me. Let me tell you what he says. The total roster of the men of war for Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh was 110,580. Let me give that to you again in case you nodded. 110,580 men of valor fighting men in Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh. If we were to go to Numbers 26, we can find out how many of that 110, 5,080 actually took part in the battle. Joshua 4.13 says that of the two and one half tribes, 
only 40,000 armed men passed over the Jordan, meaning that 70,580 men of valor, men who had promised to go with them and to fight until the land was conquered, said, we need to stay here and take care of the wife, the children, the cows. Do you think 70,580 men would make a difference in our army? Yes. I'm not saying that God could not still have victory. But God's plan, when God laid this out, he said, I've got a plan for you to go into this land. I'm giving it to you. And I want you to take all the men. I want them to go in. By not going in, they weren't able to eradicate peoples that were worshiping other gods. They began to intermarry. They began to worship other gods. They began to be accepting of other lifestyles that God had said you need no part of. It was a serious loss of a powerful force. It had a hurtful effect. Without these two and a half tribes, Israel wasn't large enough to remove all of the pagan people. So they were partially obedient. We like being partially obedient. I'll be honest. I like being partial. I like to pick the areas where I'm obedient. (laughs) But let me just tell you that today to be partially obedient is to be fully disobedient. We are called to be obedient. The two tribes, Reuben and Gad, they were the first ones to go into captivity because they sinned against God. Their fathers ended up worshiping, they sinned against the God of their fathers. They ended up worshiping other gods. They settled. And when they settled, it impacted everyone else. In verse 20, when talking to the the first generation, Moses says in verse 20, Be sure your sin will find you out. The meaning here is not be sure that your sins will be found out or your sins will be discovered. It has a different meaning. The implication here is your sin will eventually bring its own punishment. Your sin will get to you and punish you. So what exactly is this terrible sin? It's a sin of omission. We're really good at sins of omission. When the forefathers made the promise, no doubt they made it in good faith, but they never did what they promised they would do. Back to Joshua, you can see why they wanted to live there. First, they were already living there. They had settled the land. They'd lived there as much as they'd lived anywhere. They were comfortable. They were settled. Secondly, this land was already theirs. They didn't have to fight someone for the land. Why move? This is working. And third, it was just plain easier to stay than it was to move on. My wife, Patty, teaches at Deer Valley in Hoover. Please don't boo. For several years, she taught at Helena Elementary, and our life was pretty simple. She had a two and a half mile drive to work. I had a two and a half mile drive to work. It was awesome. But now she has a tough drive both ways. It's tough in the morning. It's tough in the afternoon. It makes sense for us to move Because our kids are gone. We should probably find a place closer to Hoover that's still accessible to Pelham. River Chase comes to mind. But we don't really want to move. We don't want to put our house on the market. We don't want to look for a house. We don't want to pack our stuff. We don't want to move. It would be nice for her not to have to leave early in the morning and fight traffic in the afternoon. But we don't want to move. I think this is the hinge of the argument we find in this passage. Why should we move? Things are good here. They wanted to stay because it was just easier to stay than it was to go. It was easier 
for their families to stay put. It was easier on the livestock and the herds. It was easier not to leave and just stay right where they were. When I was preparing the sermon, I called Patty and said, I'm going to use this word as the title. And I said to her the word, settle break. I said, is it illegal for me to make up a word? And she said, no, but nobody will get it. I hope you'll get it because settle break is really what's happening here. I'll define it for you. It's to be happy with your current surroundings. It means to live life without challenges and just hope everything works out. That's what we do. We settle break. It means for this two and a half tribes that they had just settled. It means they wanted to ditch their tents and lived on the eastern side of the Jordan forever. They wanted to rebuild the fortified walls for protection, for their protection. They weren't looking to God for protection. They were looking for these nice fortified walls. It was a great pasture land. It was great water. You get it, right? I get it. But by staying, it means they were also willing to accept less than the best, less than God's perfect will for them. It made sense to settle instead of trusting God. They were going to try to be content with their little share. The promised land. They had a part in the promised land. And they found their own promised land. Flowing with milk. They were going to be happy just making themselves happy. And I don't think we're much different today. We want to be happy just finding ways to make us happy. Even in the church. After I look at what God has done for us. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. He took the punishment we deserved. He carried our sins, our mistakes to the cross. Every time we cursed, Christ carried it. Every time we rebelled, Christ carried it. Every time we disobeyed our parents or we were bitter or we were selfish or we lusted or we did the opposite of what God wanted for us, Christ carried it. He took our sins. He took our punishment. He took our place. Christ took the punishment for our sins so that we wouldn't have to. The death that we deserved, he died. But we know that the grave was not the end, neither for Jesus or for us. We just came out of Christmas where we celebrated the birth of Christ. In a few months, we'll celebrate Easter, celebration of the resurrection. We celebrate Easter because three days after he died, Jesus resurrected. He came back to life. He no longer continued to carry our sins. He shook our sins off like an old rag. But the next part of the story is the part that most of us miss Just as Jesus got rid of our sins, so should we. The fact that Christ took our sins is no excuse for us to remain in our sins. We should not settle in our sins. We're to move on. We're not to settle. We're not to celebrate. Yet, some Christians choose to live this way. Once they're forgiven, they think they can just keep living in the same place. There's an old Candy Staten song titled, Sin Doesn't Live Here Anymore. That's our call. We're called to move out of a life of sin, not to celebrate in a life of sin. Some teach you can walk down an aisle and enter the water of baptism and you're saved. So we end up being left with a group of people who were born again, forgiven saints, but they still act like sinners. We still sin. 
But we need to move to the new neighborhood so we're not living in it. We are to move. We're to be changed. We're to start over new and fresh as if we were born again. Nicodemus was a good man. And Jesus said, you got to start over. You've got to be born again. But this isn't always the case. I heard a quote from a pastor one time in a meeting. He said, Brother Brown, would you please stand up and lead us in a word of criticism? (laughs) Why is that funny? It's funny because we've all seen it. We've seen people, Christians with critical spirits, people who are never pleased with what someone does for the cause of Christ. And we find them right here in the walls of the church. They settle for being critical of everyone. They refuse to move on. They refuse to move out of their criticalness. After we left the church that we served in Tennessee, I found out that my brother, my neighbor, began stealing cash from the envelopes that were given as tithe in Sunday school. I remember when I heard it, I was crushed. But in light of this sermon, he just didn't move on. He was holding on to that old man tendency. He thought it would be okay. Well, if I just get the cash, nobody will ever miss it. But he was wrong. Every year we ask for volunteers to teach or to go on a mission trip or to be a greeter or to attend a small Bible study group to give their tithe. And yet some never show up. It's because they've settled. They aren't willing to move on. It's too much. It's too much of a challenge. I'll just settle break. The promises of God stretch way past the horizon. They could live in a land flowing with milk and honey, but instead they want to stay right where they are. It's because people settle. They settle for less than God, what God wants for them. They settle for habits that actually keep them in bondage. They settle for selfishness that Christ died to set them free from. They settle for a critical spirit undermining the work of others. When God has really called them to pitch in and help. It's about settling. It's about settling when we should be pressing on. It's about being content with our own weak spiritual lives. Without daring to step outside the borders of our own comfort zone. We settle break. It's about being happy where we are. Instead of helping others rise above where they are. You see we settle too easy. We settle too soon and we settle too often. We settle for our own convenience. We settle for our own pleasure. We simply settle. President John F. Kennedy said, once you say you're going to settle for second, that's what happens to you in life. We see in this passage, two and a half tribes were settling for second best. You can call second best best all day, but it's not. They settled for something other than God's best. As Christians, selling for less than God's best is choosing to live outside of God's will. And that's a shame. Settling for a meager spiritual life just because not settling is too hard is a shame. Selling for what we have instead of helping Christian brothers and sisters reach their maturity is a shame also. Sure, it's easy for them to stay where they are, but we're commanded to press on. It was God's plan. It was God's purpose to fulfill his promise. Moses told the two and a half tribes in Numbers, if they stayed back, 
it would discourage everyone. The quote is, why do you discourage the Israelites from going into the land that the Lord has given them? It was a question. If you stay here, nobody else is going to want to go into the promised land because everything we do speaks volumes about who we are. When you settle in, when you hold back and you give up growing, you do a disservice to all of us. When you stay home just because you don't feel like going to church, it discourages the rest of us. When you stop fighting the good fight just because you're tired or ticked off, it discourages the rest of us. It affects the rest of us. In verse 14, when talking about the land on the east side, Joshua says, your family and stock may stay, but all the men must fight until the land is conquered, until the land is conquered. And then in 15, he says this, this is the new King James, King James. He says, then you shall return to the land of your possession and enjoy it, which Moses, the Lord's servant gave you on this side of the Jordan toward the sunrise. In the NIV, it says, after that, you may go back and occupy your own land, which Moses gave you. The New Living Translation is where I found this word. Only then may you return and settle here on the east side. They had already settled there. And he says, if you keep your promises to God, even though it wasn't part of God's perfect plan, after you do what you promised, you can settle. They didn't do that. The word enjoy means take possessions and enjoy settling. As believers, we should never be able to enjoy settling. The Holy Spirit is always telling us to be obedient, to move on. Yet we quieten the voice of the Holy Spirit. Christians like the blessings of forgiveness. We like the blessings of prayer. We like to worship. We enjoy all of that. We enjoy it so much that that's where we stay. We don't share it. We don't display it. We just keep it for ourselves. I remember the group uh, discussion I had with a group of students. We were talking about the fruit of the Spirit. And so I asked this question. Now, this is students. Why is there real fruit and artificial fruit? I'll let you think about it for a second. Here was their follow-up. Because good fruit can turn rotten. That's a good answer. I had to ask a follow-up. What causes good fruit to go rotten? Why does good fruit go bad? Why does an apple become rotten? It's simple. It's because it wasn't shared. It wasn't eaten. No one used it. It didn't bless anyone with its sweetness. It just got unused. And so will you. That's why some people stop getting better and they just get bitter instead. When you think you're unusable, you will grow rotten. When you stop blessing others, you will go rotten. When you would rather criticize than contribute, you grow rotten. Last Sunday began an uncomfortable challenge for our family this Christmas. Mallory, my youngest, found out that two UAB football players were stranded at their apartment and they couldn't get home for Christmas. I'll be honest and say, I thought, well, that's sad. (laughs) Patty said, well, we got to do something. Mallory said, can they come to Christmas Eve with us at Granny and Papa's, my parents? Sure, we can do that. They found something for Christmas Eve, but not for Christmas Day. So they said on Christmas Eve, tomorrow 
we'll be glad to go to Nana's, Patty's mom, and celebrate Christmas with you. So Sunday afternoon, we sent our girls to buy them a couple of presents. One of the guys is 6'5", 340 pounds. He has four inches of hair on the top of his head. When he walks in the door, the door disappears and you just see him. These are just football playing college students. One from North Carolina, one from Orlando. The one from Orlando didn't even have a coat. We went out to throw cornhole at Nana's and he's in a light shirt and he's shivering the whole time. We said, you should have worn a coat. I don't have a coat. Yeah. Was well, Christmas Day. We went to Nana's, who cooked more food, six five three forty, <laughs> and we ate and we opened gifts and we tried to be as normal as possible. When we got ready to leave, I gave one of them my info and said, "If I can ever do anything for you to help, just let me know." And then I went inside feeling good that I had the Christmas spirit. So if I can do anything. I did not mean 7 a.m. the next morning, but that's when they needed help. He texted, he said, do you know the number for a wrecker? I'm thinking, if you got a phone to text me, you got a phone to look up a wrecker service, right? I said, I have a friend with one. Give me a few minutes and I'll see what I could do. I made some phone calls. As part of the problem was their battery was dead. If they could get their car to Midas on Green Springs, that's not a plug, by the way. If they could get their car there for $110, they would put the new belt on there and they could go home for Christmas. Problem solved. I took the battery out of Mallory's car. It's fit. We got their car cranked. We got their car to Midas. We sat in the little waiting room and the guy came out and said, "Uh, I have some bad news for you. There's a bigger problem. I'm thinking, six, five, three, forty. I know bigger problems. The air conditioner compressor is locking up and that's what's killing the belt. It's not going to be the 110 that we told you. It's going to be $850 because the compressor is expensive. We can bypass the compressor for 550, but we still have to get to it. And he goes through stuff nobody wants to know. The big guy said, I can't afford it. I said, I can't afford it and I have a job. So I took them home. Well, sort of. They wanted to go to Walmart. I hate Walmart. I try never to go to Walmart. But they wanted to go to Walmart. They wanted to try to return the battery about a month old. (laughs) Yeah, right. And a brand new air pump that they had bought for $60 because one of the tires kept deflating and it was cheaper to buy a pump to inflate the tire than it was to buy a new tire. So they wanted to take it back. I took them to Walmart. I sat in the truck. <laughs> I ain't going in a day after Christmas. No way. So they go in, they come back with the battery, and they come back with food because they had none. It was then that he told me he hadn't seen his mom since last January. Even my cold heart was warmed. So we tried to buy a bus ticket. We tried to rent a car. We tried to buy airline tickets. Thursday morning, the text came, the blasted thank you text. Thank you for all you've done and trying to get us home. It was at that point that I realized 
I'm settled. I don't like to be challenged. I like to fix things, but I want to fix the things that I want to fix and ignore the rest. We are called to help others find God's blessings. You say, I'm only one person. Or I'm too old. Or I'm too young. Or I failed too many times. That's the wrong kind of thinking. You're thinking how small you are when you should be thinking how big God is. You're actually saying when you think that way that God is not smart enough or wise enough or powerful enough to use you. You see yourself as a grasshopper in a land of giants. This kind of thinking speaks much more of your faith in yourself than of your faith in him. The truth is God wants to use you. It cost us just under $500 at Christmas to send them home. Of course, just when I was not happy about spending the money, I had to take them to the bus stop 1220 in the morning. So at 1030, we began the process of getting there. And There's more of a story than you want to hear. But when we got them there and they got ready to get on the bus, I began to look around the bus stop. You should go to a bus stop at 12 o'clock in the morning. Actually, you shouldn't. Because what I saw was so many other people that needed help. So I asked God to forgive me for being so blind. God can use you. He will use you if you will let him. Ask him how. Ask him, how do you want me to grow? How can I contribute to the church? How can you use me to make a difference in someone's life? How can I be used to help others find you? You will need courage for the assignments. And you will need to be strong. If we read that whole passage, you're going to see be strong and courageous like five times. They needed it then. We need it now. In 2018, you need to be prepared, not settled. From these passages, I think we can hear God calling us this morning saying, don't settle. Be obedient. Be active in your walk with me. Follow through on your commitment. Keep your promises. Love others. Don't be critical. So I'm going to bring you to where I got at the end. This question. Are you settled? Today is a great day to be unsettled. Today is a great day to give your life to Christ. Some of you are celebrating with us. You're not a member here. You're just kind of living the life. When God is calling you to join us today, today's a great day to join us here. Today's a great day to announce, I'm not going to be settled. I'm not going to celebrate anymore. Would you ask God to help you not to celebrate any longer? Be strong and courageous. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you for this message. I thank you for the impact it had in my life and the life of my family. I thank you for the challenge of being able to help 
two young men get home to see family. Father, I pray that you will open our eyes to the needs that are all around us. Help us not just to be a nice group of people that meet a couple of times a week. Help us to be a force powered by your Holy Spirit to go across the Jordan and to live in the promised land. Use us not to be settled, but to be a difference in the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.